Hey everyone, so glad you decided to join us. I am here today with Mark Berry, who is a detective with the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office. Do I have that right, Mark? Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, yep. I am sure you are all wondering why we are interviewing a sheriff's detective on Real Leaders Radio, but this is all going to make sense in just a minute. Mark, thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be here. So the way we kick these off is we ask our guests to just share a three to four minute life story. Well, I uh, grew up in uh, Indiana, went to uh, undergraduate school and business school in the Midwest, and actually had always kind of been fascinated with the uh, FBI and thought about going that direction, but decided to go into business and try to make money. So I had a pretty successful career at a young age in real estate development with a big commercial real estate company based in Chicago. That company later acquired a uh, gourmet food business. I left the real estate company to be CEO of the gourmet food business for about eight years. We sold the gourmet food business. I um, joined several other businesses over the next 10 or 15 years. Most of my roles were CFO, except for the gourmet food business where I was a CEO, and um, had a pretty fortunate career in real estate, food retail, the grocery industry, and ultimately in the hospitality, procurement, and supply industry. That ended when I sold my interest in my last company, which was the hotel-related business, and started playing golf full-time. Got kind of bored playing golf after a couple of years. Always fascinated with financial crime and forensic accounting. And uh, knew someone at the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, and I started volunteering in their special investigations division, helping them with white-collar crime. I liked it so much that after a year or so, I gave up being a civilian volunteer and went to the law enforcement academy in Palm Beach County and became the oldest graduate of the Criminal Justice Academy and became a sworn officer pretty late in life and became a full-time detective shortly after that, working exclusively on financial and economic crimes. That's just an amazing story, Mark, and we'll talk more about that. But just to get everyone up to speed, I'd love it if you're okay if you'd name a couple of the companies. My recollection is you were chief financial officer for Giant Food, which ultimately got purchased by Stop and Shop, right? I was. I um, was CFO when it was a public company. We actually got purchased by the parent company of Stop and Shop, which was Royal Ahold a uh, very large Dutch-based international food retail conglomerate and also was uh, CFO of the Discovery.com division of the Discovery Channel Company and um, was CFO of a large procurement company called Avendra, which was a joint venture between Marriott Hotels, Hyatt Hotels, and three other big hotel companies that consolidated procurement, essentially a a purchasing consortium that was a for-profit business. Prior to that, I started my career really after a couple years in banking. I spent a lot of years in commercial real estate with a big Chicago-based developer uh, that was owned by Aetna Life and Casualty. After that, continued in real estate for a little bit, working for a partnership that was principally owned by a guy named Marvin Davis, who's a well-known Denver-based oil wildcatter, who ultimately sold his oil business and bought 20th Century Fox, which included a lot of real estate assets that our group helped him redevelop. Mark, the one thing you haven't mentioned is that you were CEO of this high-end grocery business that you alluded to called Sutton Place Gourmet, right? Yes. When our real estate business bought Sutton Place Gourmet, which was a prospective tenant at the time, 
we acquired it. And at the time I was the um, junior, most of the partners in the real estate practice. And we had a bit of a falling out with the operating partner who we acquired with the business. And one of us needed to leave the real estate business to take over the food retail business. And uh, being both the junior, most of the partners and also having grown up in a retail family, both my mom and dad were entrepreneurial retailers. I left the real estate business and took over as CEO of the food retailing company. At the time, we had two stores in the Washington, D.C. area. When I left shortly before we sold it, we had 14 stores in uh, Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, and suburban New York City. These were pretty competitive with Whole Foods at the time, right? Yes. In fact, uh, there was a business in Washington, D.C. called Fresh Fields, which was later acquired by Whole Foods, which opened very near to us and was our first big competitor. Whereas we were more oriented towards gourmet foods and specialty imported foods, uh, obviously Whole Foods focused uh, more heavily on healthy foods and uh, natural foods. You once told me something about Sutton Place that I thought has really stayed with me for what now is about 15 or 16 years. As that chain expanded and you were in a super lucrative, really juicy market in that area of the country, you told me something like one or two of those units were really successful. And I think what you said is that one of the lessons you took away from Sutton Place is that it would have been a really nice business to run either those one or two of those units, but it didn't get necessarily incrementally more profitable to be adding units. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And in fact, still today, I have great respect for restaurateurs and, and retailers who have one terrific location where they make a lot of money and they're well-known as a destination business who choose not to expand their business and uh, spread themselves thin. Everyone's inclination is, is to grow and be bigger and do more. And I think it's a great thing when you have a, a great business uh, that's highly successful and uh, often uh, affords you a quality of life and balance, a work-life balance that really is uh, maybe the, the optimal uh, situation in life. And I've seen too many people expand their business marginally and become miserable because of it when uh, sometimes it's, there's just nothing wrong with having one great store or one great restaurant making a lot of money and, and kind of being in control of your life. And I think that's a fantastic lesson for a lot of people who listen to this podcast. Most of the people that are on this podcast are people who really are startup entrepreneurs. And at the beginning of, of your role and your run in Sutton Place, that's really what that business was. So that really, that, that lesson always stayed with me. There's so much negativity associated with this concept. It now has a name of running a lifestyle business. I'm putting that in air quotes, which no one can see. And you, what, what a lifestyle business used to be called was a business. And I wonder if you have thoughts on sort of where venture financing is the main topic startups like to talk about and just sort of how the universe has changed a lot, even since I met you 15 years ago. I, I think one of the great challenges for, for entrepreneurs and, and business people is um, to resist financing uh, sometimes when the financing is appealing just because it's attractively priced money. And, and I found a couple times in my career, um, we sort of took the money because it was aggressively presented to us 
and it was relatively uh, inexpensive money, but it wasn't necessarily the best thing to do because it led to uh, expanding a business in maybe some marginal locations or, or getting into some marginal sectors that weren't really profitable. So um, I think you have to be really careful when somebody's dangling that uh, financial carrot in front of you and, and make sure that uh, you're not only getting money at an effective cost, but you also really need the money and, and have really productive and efficient plans to use that money, to put that money to work. Mark, what do you think growing up in a small town in Indiana did to your business outlook and what you took away from that experience as you grew into your career? It, it definitely helped me kind of grow with an entrepreneurial mentality. I mean, my dad had a small business, uh, retail footwear business in, in northern Indiana. I spent my childhood in his store, you know, sweeping the floors, helping him in any way I could, just watching him. And uh, I saw a man that really loved people, loved to make people happy, and was so customer oriented. You know, well, well before I knew anything about all the all the buzzwords of customer service and customer satisfaction, and the customer's always right. So I just grew up in that world. I was also fortunate to have a mom who also was an entrepreneur and had her own women's formal wear and bridal shop, totally separate uh, and apart from my dad's business. Yeah, it was at a time when not that many moms were running their own businesses. And she grew her business, actually grew her business to be bigger than my dad's business. And uh, she she was great at the marketing and people side of the business, not so much on the financial side. And probably at 12 or 13 years old, I was doing her bookkeeping for her. So I kind of grew up uh, in, in a world where I was highly exposed to both the, the customer side, the financial side of the business, and uh, all the people aspects of the business. And uh, that definitely helped me in many, many ways. Obviously, I'm part of this conversation about the value of investing in women leaders. I spend most of my time focused on the issue around early stage companies. Have you formed opinions about that that might derive from your experience with such a strong mother in your life and a pretty strong sister, I think? I guess because of how I grew up, I could never really differentiate in, in business or politics or any other part of my life between the capabilities of men and the capabilities of women. You know, when you grow up and you see your mom start a business way later than your dad started his business and your mom's business almost doubles the size of your dad's business, you, you lose any biases towards the capabilities of men versus women or women versus men. So they, you know, they looked the same to me, men and women in business. And I think that that was just part of my mentality and perspective throughout my career. I mentored some women who really, I don't think, realized how much capability they had. And, and they ended up having tremendous capability and, and becoming, you know, executive suite players in their respective businesses. And also molded my politics in, in terms of uh, gender rights and equal pay for equal work. I, I just grew up in that world where it just looked the same to me. I couldn't differentiate between the capabilities of men and the capabilities of women. Did you ever find yourself in situations in the office where there was gender stuff that was going on that you felt was either conscious or unconscious bias? And if, if you did, I mean, you were in real estate, you were in food, and then you were in procurement. So you actually were in a lot of industries that have 
frankly, still many of those are still run mostly by men. Did you have opportunities to interrupt those patterns? How did you handle it when you saw it? Um, I, I did have some opportunities to, to interrupt those those patterns. I would say it, it seemed that most of the companies I worked with were either very small and I had a very substantial role in that company. So uh, those of us in management in those companies wouldn't permit that behavior. Or I was at some very big companies, and I think the, the very large companies – by this time had already had a focus on, on uh, fairness and equality and, and equal rights in the workplace. So uh, I saw examples to me. The biggest injustice was women that were uh, very smart, very capable, but were, were sort of pigeonholed into a position by a manager who just assumed that's where they belonged where you could actually see the potential of that person and in some cases help that person really grow and, and blossom into into an executive. What's your advice for somebody who ends up with a boss who may not have the same views of nurturing talent as you have, or even spotting talent as you have? What's your advice for people either in large companies or small companies that feel like they are, especially when they're young, getting sent down a path that may be limiting? I've always told people that who you work for specifically is critically important to your career. And, and my advice would be to not work for very long for somebody who doesn't uh, appreciate your capabilities, uh, especially if they don't appreciate them because of your gender or race or, or, or some other aspect like that. Uh, on the other side of that, I've said it can be a great thing to work for somebody uh, who's a rising star and, and if you're good, ride the coattails of, of their ascent. So uh, to me, it comes down to only working for people that, A, you think are smart, B, you think respect and appreciate you for your capabilities. And if that's not what your boss is, then you need to find another place to work. You need to find find the kind of boss that's that's going to help your career grow. When you look at the landscape now in terms of trying to find those people, would do you advise young people coming out of college to go work at large companies, or do you encourage them to check out smaller, fast-growing companies? What's your What's the latest opinion on that from you? I'd say uh, both of the above, and and probably uh, stay away from the companies that are more in the middle. I think the very big companies um, are are great at recognizing the sensitivities to. Um, gender bias and potential gender bias and potential race bias and um, other biases. And I think the very small companies, if they have a good leader, they'll be great about that. They'll, they'll be sensitive to those things naturally. And I think it gets harder when you're in the more middle-sized companies, the companies that are not a, you know, a 10 or 20 or 30 person sort of startup or small growing business, but they're also not a big public company or, or Fortune 500 style company. Uh, the ones in the middle are the ones that I think uh, you have to be the most cautious with. Just because they're neither small enough to really cultivate actively a culture nor big enough to have put in place a bunch of processes to reinforce culture. That's, that's a really interesting point. That's right. Mark, a number of times in your career, actually including the one that I'm, I'm just going to, I'm teasing again and again, because it's so fascinating, your transition into, you know, joining the sheriff's department. But a number of times you have been asked to take very senior roles when you weren't looking. What do you think 
makes you the kind of person that created those kinds of opportunities? I, I don't think it's a complicated formula. You know, I think I think working hard. Um, I, I think one of the most important attributes is a, a very strong intellectual curiosity, um, because no matter what I've done, whether it's speaking to an investor conference as a public company CFO or taking on a, a counterfeit check ring case. Your intellectual curiosity to learn more about anything you're doing, to me, is, is is what always drives you forward and gets you ahead. And I think people recognize that around you. And I think other business leaders like people that show a lot of intellectual curiosity and are constantly trying to learn. So I've, I've been constantly trying to learn. Some people would accuse me of having changed careers too many times because I've had a pretty eclectic career. But part of it comes from the drive to learn about whatever I'm doing and seeing that drive actually lessen after five or six or eight years of doing what I'm doing and, and then therefore having a desire to take on something different. What's the favorite business role that you ever held? Maybe as a tie between my uh, early real estate days where I was a um, very fortunate that to be at a pretty young age, a uh, an executive officer of a, a very large-scale development company that was very capital-intensive but not very labor-intensive because we did development of projects. We didn't actually do the construction. Because of that, we had very large budget projects, and the expense of working on those projects in terms of travel and entertainment and marketing were minuscule parts of the budget, and it afforded uh, a great deal of fun in uh, working on very large projects. Uh, traveling around the country and having a lot of fun doing all that. Uh, but I also had a lot of fun in the gourmet food business as, as a retail CEO, uh, spending time in the stores, doing store rounds on an almost daily basis, talking to customers, uh, hearing customers come up and, and praise certain employees for what they've done or how they've uh, provided service to them was, was really gratifying and, and really fun. On that point, before we get to your gumshoe life, your current life, <laughs> I want to I want to ask this question. So I, I've been really struggling. I work with a lot of young food companies who are creating incredible innovation, and I've started to see that side of this business. And living in Boulder, Colorado, you're surrounded by people with great natural foods ideas, many of which have fantastic products that are available. For example, just to start in every region of Whole Foods and where those CEOs and founders have a really challenging time running the business because of the inequality in position between these retailers who buy their products and the exorbitant costs of making them. Do you still pay attention to that? Was that true when you were in this business? What are we going to do about that? I think it's a constant challenge. And ultimately, I think if it's not a, a low-cost, high-volume product, your product has to be good enough and special enough to warrant a price that's commensurate with the cost of making it and, and a retailer that will market it at the proper price. It's tough to have a product that doesn't totally stand out to the customer as something very special and have a premium price that generates a good gross profit margin. Yeah, it just gets harder and harder the more demands that are placed on, you know, organic non-GMO, these products are just getting more and more expensive to create. Anyway, this is probably just my own personal thing, but uh, 
someone's going to fix this. It's probably not you because you're too busy tracking down <laughs> criminals. So let's talk about this. So you go in, you decide you're going to lend your CFO financial acumen to the detectives group at the sheriff's department. And you get plucked in a very similar way. And, and someone tells you, we would love for you to consider doing this full time, not as a civilian volunteer. Obviously, you didn't need the money when you said you were playing golf. You sort of made it sound like you were on the senior tour. What you meant when you were playing golf full time is you were at a country club playing golf whenever you wanted, uh, not exactly. for any, not for any big purses, but could you, cause you had retired and could afford to do that. So talk a little bit about how that happened. I'll make a point about, uh, community service and, and, you know, how you contribute your time after you've made a fair amount of money. I actually, before that, I would even say, uh, I probably have a very different perspective about money than um, a lot of CEOs and successful CFOs. Um, most of the people I've worked with, the more money they've made, the more they feel like they need to keep making. And um, I'm not, you know, the highest net worth guy in my in, in my community and uh, could easily have kept working to make more money. But when I got to a point that I felt I had enough to um, have some financial security – I stopped focusing on collecting more money and wanted to do other things where money didn't really matter. So I wanted to do something community service oriented. I had already been on some nonprofit boards and probably felt that board service alone uh, wouldn't be fulfilling enough. So that's one of the reasons I started volunteering in uh, a, a special investigations division. And, you know, I think everybody wants to feel productive and relevant when they're not just trying to have a big corporate position. So I, I didn't really want a, an executive suite position at this stage of my life. But on the other hand, I still wanted to feel relevant and, and productive in life and society. And it, it was also exciting and fascinating and a huge challenge. Uh, I mentioned earlier about my curiosity about learning. So I knew if I went into financial crimes and law enforcement, it would be a totally new learning curve. I'd really be starting from almost scratch, except for my existing financial and accounting. Okay, let's talk about Police Academy, because I've heard these stories and they're fantastic. So you show up, there are a whole bunch of people there with you, all for the first day of Police Academy. And what percentage of the people who started the first day graduated from academy? Well, we, our class started with um, 36 candidates on day one. In the first three hours, three candidates quit. <laughs> um, uh, the first day at, at 6 a.m., you enter a classroom, and then uh, drill sergeants come in screaming at you to run outside into an open was really an open big parking lot. It was still dark out. Police cars were in a circle with their red and blue lights flashing. They forced everyone to the center of the circle and started everyone doing push-ups, sit-ups, and, and other physical uh, activities until um, the first couple of people kind of lost their breakfast and uh, kind of went downhill from there. Uh, but of the 36, um, 26 actually graduated. In, in my class, made it to graduation. And um, I, w I think I was older than the father of every graduate, except for three of them. <laughs> so, so I was definitely the, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the dad figure of the group. What was it like having been a chief executive to take orders from these guys who were running your training? I had an appreciation for what I was doing, and I knew it, it, it was a means to an end. 
and, and I think that implies in, in business too. Sometimes you do things that um, are a means to an end. I, I had a goal and I wanted to get to the goal. And if it meant taking orders from people that I knew a year or two later might be reporting to me in the, in the organization, I, I could do that. And I was fine with that. Um, but, but you have to be ready for that. And, and I think it's, again, it's true in business too. There are times when you have a goal and you say, I'm going to put up with some things, uh, to get to my goal. And as long as they're, they're legal and, and, and not offensive, you know, morally or ethically or, you know, in, in any other way that personally offends you, you know, you just, you just do it. So I knew it was kind of a game. I knew that the drill sergeants that were yelling at us and knocking the hats off our head and they were playing their role and I was playing my role, which, uh, was to obey orders at that time. What was the highlight and the low light of those five months? The, the, the low light was probably um, where we were required to be um, pepper sprayed with military-grade pepper spray. Oh, my gosh. So, so that we would know what it was like in the event. It turns out that when you use pepper spray in an incident um, in law enforcement, it, it's so hard to control that usually some of the spray gets on you. So you have to be prepared for what that feels like so that you don't panic when it does happen in a real situation. And because of that, we all had to go through a day of pepper spray. That, that was probably the low light of the, of the academy process. For a, you know, a business executive who never owned a firearm, uh, I think passing firearms qualifications in the last week of the academy was the highlight. So they ask you to become an actual detective. Right. Which if I don't know, I mean, I, I was a federal prosecutor, but I never really worked with local sheriff's offices or local police departments. But I think the way that's depicted in movies is that's always kind of a big deal. Like you work a long time as a cop and then maybe you get the nod to be a detective, but you kind of had an opportunity to potentially bypass that part of being a police officer, right? Uh, partly. I mean, you can't totally bypass it. Uh, I was in the, what, is commonly called the police academy for five months. Um, yeah, let's talk about let's let's talk about basic. That I know you didn't bypass. So so no. you, you started. This is is that basic training? Is that what it's called? It's called the police academy. Oh, but really it includes is. every day at six a.m. It includes uh, PT or physical training. Okay, so you were to, sort of invited to do that, and um, like you show up. How old were you the day you started that? Uh, I was uh, 60 years old. Okay. First of all, how did it, wait, hold on. Before we get to that, how did it go with your family? My kids thought it was really cool. Maybe a little crazy, but really cool. My significant other thought it was crazy and dangerous. And how could you do this? (laughs) And and she's right. It it actually was a little crazy and sometimes dangerous. I mean, probably still is, right? Uh, it is. I mean, I do. She, she still kind of hates that I wear a gun to work every day. I mean, I wear a gun and a badge to work every day when I walk out of the house. And, and I'm caught up in situations uh, sometimes that are, you know, a little dicey. Uh, even though most of my work is uh, in the office, I'm still out interviewing suspects and also can participate and I'm required sometimes to participate in in-progress calls. So I go to in-progress uh, bank frauds, people that are in banks trying to cash counterfeit checks with gang members waiting outside for them in a, in a getaway car. And uh, so, yeah, it could, it could be kind of dicey, but 
we're a big agency. We've, we've got about 4,000 employees. Our budget is over half a billion dollars. Uh, we've got a lot of resources, great training. It's not so much like in the movies where people walk into a dark warehouse alone, pointing their gun, looking for the bad guy. We, we don't do things that way. And uh, so it's safer than it looks on TV maybe, but uh, still can be dangerous. Mark, when you look around at your contemporaries, people you came up through your career with who are still, you know, in your life, what do you think differentiates the ones that are happy from the ones that are less happy? I think the ones that are most happy are the, are the ones that have a, a good perspective on life and work-life balance. Uh, the ones that are happiest are the ones that are doing what they want to do. Uh, working as much as they want to work, which which may be a lot of hours or maybe not that many hours, and doing other things that they uh, want to do. The ones that are least happy are the ones that, to my earlier point, are, are, are chasing a bar that keeps rising and rising. And I, I don't always think it's a bar they have to chase, um, but for whatever reason they're chasing it. And their lives are more complicated and more stressed uh, than they probably need to be at, at this point in their lives. As you look at startups and sort of the companies that get all the press, and even in your own life, working in your own organization, what benefit does seasoning and experience offer to companies or other organizations? I think it's hard to measure, but I mean, there's, there's no question that having young, highly energetic bright talent when combined with experienced, mature, seasoned business people. It's a it, just a killer positive combination. And I mean, one of the keys is to, if you can, identify those, those mature, experienced business people who are at a point in their life where they're still open-minded enough to hear and appreciate the thoughts and ideas of the younger people. And I think that's a challenge because I think a lot of younger people would say, well, we've got this person with a lot of experience, but they kind of only know how to do it their way. And that's not the right kind of sort of mature, experienced talent to, to help the younger entrepreneurs. But I, but I think if you can find that right mix, I think it's just a, it's a wonderful mix and it can lead to really great things. Mark, thanks so, so much. I, I have once or twice in this show referred to my rabbis, which I also put air quotes that no one can see around. Uh, and as you know, for, for a good number of years, you have been one of mine and I consider myself incredibly fortunate for that to be true. So thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're going to write that book about this transition from CEO to sheriff's detective. So we'll look forward to seeing that. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us again today on Real Leaders Radio. We look forward to many more episodes, not all of which are going to include the transition from executive to cop, but this was a story you'll only hear on this show. 